0: Hello, and welcome to the Ether Podcast. I'm Laura Thurston Goodrow, and today I will be visiting with Dr. Bradley Podliska about his book, Fire Alarm, the Investigation of the U.S. House Select Committee on Benghazi. The book was published this year by Roman and Littlefield and is available for purchase via the publishers and retailers, including Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Dr. Podliska is an Assistant Professor of Military and Security Studies at Air Universities, Air Command and Staff College. Prior to arriving at Air University, he worked as an investigator for the U.S. House of Representatives Select Committee on Benghazi. He has a Ph.D. in political science from Texas A&M and is also the author of Acting Alone, a scientific study on American hegemony and unilateral use of force decision-making, published in 2010 by Lexington Books. Welcome to the podcast, Brad.
1: Well, thank you, Laura, for having me. I appreciate being here.
0: Sure, sure.
1: So to start, I
0: always like to, I'm curious when I interview people about their interest in what they've written, whether it's an article or book. So obviously your interest in the subject matter is clear as you served as committee staff. And I was thinking, I didn't realize this till I read the book. Um, you said it was the 10th or 11th hearing on Benghazi. I, I had no idea that there were that many convened.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Benghazi committee where I worked was actually the tenth congressional investigation, and so there was a, you know, two or three government investigations, and then there was ten in total congressional investigations.
0: Amazing. I do I have keen memories of that time, but uh, <laughs> didn't realize that that much had happened up there on the Hill. So uh, give us a general overall focus then of the book.
1: Yeah. So my the bottom line with fire alarm, and this is counterintuitive to the the ten investigations, is that Congress missed it in terms of retelling the story of the Benghazi in terms of the attack and the Obama administration response to that attack. And the reason they missed it, and that's what this book is about, is because of partisanship. Partisanship impaired Congress's ability to actually accurately recount the events of September 11, 2012, in which four Americans were killed. And the, and the reason for that is these investigations are simply designed to go after a rival presidential candidate, not to impart the truth to the American people.
0: Yeah. So for some background, then walk us through the timeline of events of the attack. Again, I sort of remember it myself, but for those folks who who don't, if you could tell us.
1: Sure. Yeah. So this is September 11th, 2012. It's in the midst of the 2012 presidential campaign. And there's an attack at 9.42 p.m. Eastern European time in which... Hundreds of attackers overran the Benghazi Mission Compound, which is a State Department complex in Benghazi, overran the compound. Uh, about a mile away, there's a CIA annex. And for that, there was a GRS team, a security team assigned to protect that annex. And about an hour later, they made their way over to the State Department compound, found Sean Smith. They did not find Ambassador Stevens at the time. They rounded up the State Department personnel and brought him back to the CIA annex. They were soon attacked there at the CIA annex by by attackers. And then there's a lull of several hours where nothing happened. And during that time, there was another team in Tripoli, a GRS team in Tripoli that actually flew from Tripoli to Benghazi to help out the CIA annex. And soon after they got there, they were attacked by mortars, a very well-coordinated, well-planned attack on the CIA annex. They were attacked. And then about half an hour later or so, basically the personnel rounded themselves up, got to the Benghazi airport, got to Tripoli and flew out to Germany. It took about 24 hours total for them to save themselves uh, is what it came down to.
0: So then then we moved to the attack happens and obviously four Americans were killed, including the ambassador. So tell us about the congressional investigations that commenced following that and the administration's response. How did they become so political and partisan?
1: Yeah, well, immediately before that attack in the the, the second attacking the CIA annex before the mortar attack. Mitt Romney is going to release a statement basically blaming President Obama for being a failure when it comes to Libya. And to me, what I found in my research is that basically was a punch in the nose. Obama administration is going to have to defend themselves. And so they're going to come out with a statement at 10:08 p.m. on the night of the attacks in which they conflate the violence with basically a mob gone awry over an anti-Islamic video. That was released. And so this immediately is a partisan fight. It's going to then carry over for a couple of years after the election of President Obama. Uh, it's going to carry over to Clinton when she's running for president in 2016.
0: Yeah. It, and as you note, so these investigations are, are not a cost free endeavor for either party. They invoke political costs for either candidates or the party party itself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the cost to the the Democrats and to Clinton herself is is obvious. The literature states that the more you actually use Congress to investigate uh, a rival candidate, you're going to bring down their poll numbers. And so Representative McCarthy, who's running for speaker, is actually going to come on TV and says basically we we accomplished what we intended to do, which was bring down Clinton's poll numbers. And it does show that Clinton's poll numbers as a result of these investigations actually went down five percentage points. Uh, and then there's also the the indirect things where the emails are going to come out, and she's going to be, you know, investigate up until the time of the election about the the emails. But what I write about in Fire Alarm is also kind of this counterintuitive notion that this is not a cost free endeavor for the Republicans. The Republicans themselves are basically going to miss exactly what happened in Benghazi, and as a result of that, failed to hold people accountable for what happened. They they ended up taking windmill swings at Clinton. Clinton certainly should be held accountable for some things and i found new evidence on her but you know a reasonable objective investigation is going to attempt to hold those who committed any type of wrong dealing or negligence accountable and that didn't occur
0: So later on, we'll talk in more detail about some of the other stakeholders. But before we get there, you talk about in the book about institutional changes and you identify changes that occurred after Watergate and then changes that occurred after the Newt Gingrich Republican Revolution era. Can you talk a little bit about those institutional changes? I I used to work on the Hill. So, you know, those details about how committees are structured is critical in terms of outcomes, but it's just something that, you know, it's boring and people don't really care about, but it's, it's really critical. So I found that part of the book really interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So with Watergate, we we tend to think of, you know, using it, Congress did its due diligence and holding Nixon accountable. But after Watergate, there's actually going to be some institutional changes within Congress. And that is prior to Watergate committee chairs, it was based on seniority. So if you're the senior ranking member and you were up next for committee chair, you got it. And so this gave committee chairs a certain amount of independence from party leadership. However, after Watergate, they're going to decide party leadership is not going to choose the committee chairs. This is going, so replacing seniority. So if you have to be in good favors with the party, otherwise you're not going to be chosen for committee chair. Newt Gingrich, uh, when he's attempting to take over Congress for the Republicans in 1994, is going to determine that congressional elections are not local elections. They are actually part of national elections. So he's going to have this contract with America. So if you're running as a Republican for Congress, there's, I believe there's 10 things you need to sign on for as a Republican in order to get get elected. So he's going to look at, Elections as national elections, he's going to basically tie Republicans together through this, this partisan brand. And then, when Republicans come to party, he's going to ramp up those institutional changes. Uh, so once again, the party leadership is going to have to choose the the committee chair. Gingrich is going to create task forces that basically go outside the scope of committees. So if he wants, uh, he and party leadership want to introduce legislation, they can use their task force to actually introduce that legislation. They're going to remove the minority party from rule deliberation, basically reduce and further the power of the minority party has anything to do in Congress. And the other thing they're going to do is they're going to cut committee staffs by a third. And so they're going to really impair kind of the research function of these these committees.
0: That was one of the questions I had about what are the consequences of reduced committee staff? Because- I know that, you know, there were elements of the Obama administration where there was a ramp up of staff, National Security Council staff. Mm. And then, um, you know, with the next administration, the Trump administration, that that was backed off. And so I was curious about your finding there, too, uh, or your observation that a greater number of staff is a better thing for the committees.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So now with with Congress, at at one period of time, it was actually almost paralleling the executive branch in terms of committee staff. It was ramping up more and more staff. It was given Congress's research arm. And so Gingrich is going to cut that staff by a third. Another key finding I have in my book is not only are these staff going to be cut, but these staff are also going to be vetted through a party loyalty process based on prior Capitol Hill experience. So you initially get signed to a junior position on Capitol Hill. Once you kind of prove yourself as a loyal party member, you're going to get promoted to more and more plum assignments. And so as a result of this, these staffers are not doing research. What they're simply doing is going out and trying to compile gotcha questions for their members, because you as a staff member, you personally want to elevate your own reputation by having that person that found that nugget that the congressperson can use during the hearing to great effect. And so these hearings are basically broken down into the public fights where each congressional representative is basically posing a gotcha question. To the witness to kind of make the, the 30 second sound bite on the national news.
0: Yeah. So, do you think it would be better if hearings like this were not televised?
1: So, uh, Representative Gowdy actually came out after the Clinton hearing and said, Hey, this was basically a failure because it was public. And this basically turned into a public fistfight. And I agree with him on that. I think closed door sessions are, are kind of the way to go and maybe release the video later. But yeah, these, you know, you're basically. Trading sound bites for your base, for your your cheering section, and then not actually, you know, doing anything of substance, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. What was missed with the investigation because of all this, you know, partisanship and gotcha questions?
1: So the the ultimate question in that this is the Republicans spent a considerable amount of time trying to pin responsibility for Libyan policy onto Clinton. Uh, they weren't able to do so. There's actually a great moment where Roskin during the hearing is saying, hey, Clinton, we know you're responsible just for Libyan policy. Just go ahead and admit to that. And then she, of course, deflects the blow quite, quite easily. Um, and the reason he did that is because once again, he did that research from a staff member. He was just taking windmill swings. So I determined based on basically my research, the way to have done this was the question, the middle level of bureaucrats both in the State Department and the National Security Council. And in fact, one of these National Security Council members, Ben Fishman, who was at the Libyan desk, actually presented names of, I worked with so-and-so in the State Department, Libyan policy. I worked with, you know, this person, that person, named names. However, there wasn't any follow-up to these names. And so the next step would have been to bring in these witnesses and kind of build the case from there. The second thing was, why were the American people told that the violence was due to an anti-Islamic video now the republican report did talk about the the private statements that clinton was making and how they contradicted her public statements but what i found was they didn't actually identify the author who actually was the original author that came out and said that these the violence was due to an islamic anti-islamic video and what i found in my research is it was actually jake sullivan who after a 7.30 p.m. interagency meeting went and wrote the talking points, circulated drafts, including to Ben Rhodes. um, And this became Clinton's statement at 10.08 p.m. on the night of the attacks. Ben Rhodes is then going to copy those talking points that Jake Sullivan wrote for government officials to use, including Susan Rice on the Sunday talk shows. Um, And then the final point was why the military failed to conduct a timely rescue. And once again, the Benghazi committee Republicans missed this. And that was because the military thought it was responding to a hostage rescue. They thought Ambassador Stevens had been taken hostage and that this was not a conventional style, well-organized, well-planned terrorist assault on a a mission compound. And so they actually, there's going to be delays where they're trying to determine Ambassador Stevens' whereabouts. And they also didn't pick the right units to respond to this. Uh, They thought time was more on their side. And President Obama, to his credit, actually said use all available resources to save Americans there. The military officials actually confined their search to only European command assets. They did not do a full extensive search of what was available to them.
0: And so on that same line of discussion, so you've talked about that the military failed to identify, did not perform a timely response. And then you talk about an interesting turn about they should have followed the planning process. And um, you go into an a interesting discussion about that. So if you could talk a, a little bit to that.
1: Yeah, so what we teach our, our officers in PME is something referred to as the joint planning process. This is doctrine. So this is our best available knowledge that officers can use to help them get through that. And what this is, is a, a very structured, but also creative process in which you have the end goals tied to military operations. And we know, uh, based on my research, senior officials did not follow that process in Washington. What is ironic, as best I can tell based on the interviews, is that AFRICOM staffers were actually woken up in the middle of the night. They went through the planning process. They were going through the planning process. And they were kind of informally consulted, but their products were actually never delivered to Washington. And so, hour and a half into the attacks, Panetta's going to make the decision that Ambassador Stevens has been taken hostage. We saw this in January of this year, 2012, in Somalia, where an American and uh, I believe it was a Danish citizen were taken hostage. We ran Con Plan 0300. Then we're going to rerun Con Plan 0300 now because it's a hostage rescue. And of course, that turned out not to be the case. And so if they had followed doctrine, they had gone through the joint planning process. It's an iterative process. You're updating things as you get new information. You have a constant search for new facts to understand the operational environment that you're getting into. It's not just pull a plan off the shelf and use it. You actually got to fine tune it, you got to customize it to your operation.
0: And there are clear directions and doctrine about crisis action planning in particular. So it sounds like AFRICOM did cap.
1: Yeah, no, I, yeah, and there's testimony to that effect that they were going through crisis action planning. So the seven, what I believe to be the seven steps of joint planning process. Unfortunately, in Washington, that was not occurring.
0: I wonder if that's where military and the interagency that does not have that training. I wonder if that's where those uh, collide a little
1: bit, maybe. No, yeah, absolutely. So we wouldn't expect State Department or White House officials to understand joint planning process. And so the 730 meeting that I talked about, there was very much deferment to the military. Hey, what's the U.S. going to do in response to these attacks? Well, over to you, military, you do the, the response. And to that, Panetta and, and his defense legitimately said, Got it. We we have a plan in place. I've issued orders. He actually issued orders to start moving assets at 7 p.m. So 30 minutes prior to that meeting, there was yeah very much a deferment to the military of of taking care of the the problem.
0: And in the book, did you mention that the military itself there was some evidence that they were sort of also maybe at the same time waiting for signals from Washington? Did I miss ah, did I miss that?
1: No, that's exactly right. So you have this this game of telephone. There's this great geographic challenge. So AFRICOM officials are gonna to testify to the fact, well, we had this lull uh, from Washington, we weren't hearing anything. And so also the guys in, in Tripoli were saying we weren't we weren't hearing anything. So you have this great disconnect between the different puzzle pieces between Tripoli, AFRICOM, and then in Washington. And so everybody was kind of waiting on the other to start doing things. And what this comes back to is ultimately Panetta is making decisions under the advice of Chair Joint Chiefs of Staff Dempsey, and then the AFRICOM commander, General Ham, who just happened to be in Washington during the attacks. Interesting. So
0: turning back to the congressional partisanship and political aspect of these, in your discussion of future research, you mentioned examining partisanship as a legitimate form of oversight. So I was kind of curious about having you talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. And so the point I want to make is I don't want to just pick on the Republicans and how they conducted the Benghazi investigation with this book. My model is that both parties use this partisan model to conduct their investigation. So I would argue that the same things Republicans did with Benghazi also apply to the January 6th committee. And so that Congress is really shirking its oversight responsibility by basically using taxpayer funds to conduct these political attacks on their political opponents. Uh, And the way they do that is they pick committee members based on party loyalty they vet the staff for party loyalty, and then they hyper focus on the, the rival candidate with their investigations. So, you know, with Benghazi, it was a hyper focus on Clinton. With January sixth committee, it was a hyper focus on on Trump. And Republicans now that they're in power are turning that focus towards Biden in the twenty twenty four election.
0: Yeah. And on that, so you also talk about the importance of vetting committee staff to ensure they're nonpartisan. So I'm kind of curious, again, after after being up there for some years,
1: how would you do that? So extremely difficult. I, you know, it's a pipe dream. I would say the model is the Congressional Research Service. When I work there, yeah, I know that's that both great. parties, if you had a question, hey, send it to CRS. Get a response from them, and nobody ever complained when I was there about CRS being partisan. It was send the question to them, you get the response, and so for me, that's kind of the model that maybe these these members should rely on more of a Congressional Research Service. You I'd argue you'd have to expand the staff, or you know either that or move the staff order to these committee positions. And so you kind of have this really, truly objective, nonpartisan research staff that's available for members to use. And the members, of course, could form their own positions based on the information they're receiving from this group. That,
0: that's a really good idea. I had not even thought about that. CRS is great.
1: Yeah, it's a pipe dream, but at least, you know, we have something out there as a model.
0: Yeah. And then another point I found interesting, uh, you found that, Americans support congressional investigations, mm. even though they know they're partisan. I, so I'm kind of a cynic, <laughs> um, but I f- I found that sort of an interesting, surprising finding.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So what these hearings investigations are is really like appealing to your cheering section. And so if you're a Democrat, you're going to tune into the January 6th committee hearings. And of course, they made it on primetime TV and they had an ABC News producer. And this was you know, very flashy presentation. And so what you're doing is you're really riling up your base saying, yes, the other side is evil. Look at them. We found the evidence. Now go out and vote. And so this isn't about winning over the American people in general. This is about winning over your partisans.
0: So they support the investigations if it's if it yes. aligns with their party. OK, well, that that's interesting. Well, as we close up here, is there anything else that you'd like to, you know, any final thoughts?
1: Yeah. So I am a little bit of a cynic when it comes to congressional investigations. But with that said, I think your your final point alludes to this, and that is the American people truly want the truth. Uh, So when it comes to Benghazi, give us the unvarnished truth on why four Americans were killed there. Knock it off with this partisan spin. Just go out there and and find out the truth. I think the exact same thing with January 6th is give us the truth. Yes, if Trump is responsible, if there's more people that are responsible, fine, let, let's hear it out. Even if it's a middle-level bureaucrat that we've never heard of, and they took some action that was, you know, a part of this, let's let's hear their name. And so I think, you know, in an optimistic note, I think the American people truly want the truth and they're ready to hear the truth, regardless of which political party it might, might harm in the process.
0: I want to commend your book to our listeners. It's really good. It's ex- exhaustively researched. Uh, you have charts, you have your you know the the whole investigation and your process uh, research process is is excellent and and well done. So I commend the book to everyone listening. Fire alarm and thank you for joining us on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you, Laura. I appreciate you you having me.